Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. Uh, my name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Lee Marie Braswell as our guest today. She's a partner at Kleiner Perkins and has an extensive background in machine learning and AI. So before we kick off the discussion around uh, AI, uh, Lee Marie, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at KP after uh, so many years? Absolutely. Uh, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Anurag. Uh, super excited to be here. I uh, think it might be interesting to go back to the very, very start. Uh, so funnily enough, I grew up in a very small town in Alabama. And in middle school, I started doing a ton of co competitive math. And that's what ultimately led me out of the state. I thought I was going to be a math professor going into college. Um, but actually in college, I ended up trying out a bunch of different stuff, whether it was trading or different types of engineering. Um, and where I got really excited was that I realized that I loved my machine learning classes. So to me, machine learning was really a practical application of math and programming that had incredible results. Um, so I ended up doing a machine learning internship at Google. Uh, separately, I also met and got to know Alex Wang, the CEO and founder of Scale, um, playing poker on the MIT Poker Club, actually. Um, and then kind of realized as he started Scale that it was really a perfect fit for what I wanted to do. So I knew about how hard it was to get good training data for my time at Google. Um, and then also separately, you know, couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with some of my closest friends uh, on something that was very, very early stage. So I, so I ended up starting as one of the first engineers at Scale, helped build out Scale's 3D annotation products for self-driving cars, robotics, and ARVR companies, especially their perception models. And this led me to getting a front row seat to what was actually going on in machine learning. Um, and I, you know, ended up learning a ton and meeting a lot of people that would eventually be helpful for my investing career. Definitely didn't know that at the time. Um, but yeah, a lot of people that I work with today. Uh, transitioned from being an engineer to being a product manager at scale, was there for around four years. Um, and then what kind of got me into investing. So the last year that I was at scale, um, I actually started to get into angel investing. This was uh, during the COVID lockdown. A lot of my friends outside of scale started companies. Uh, and I realized that I really loved working with them. So helping them think through early product stuff, helping them hire their early engineers and their team, um, as well as just kind of generally learning about different spaces and, and meeting other incredible people. Um, so I decided to try uh, full-time investing at Founders Fund a couple of years ago. Um, I ended up investing in companies like Persona, which does identity verification, and Chronosphere, which does cloud-native observability, uh, more on the growth stage, and then at the earlier stage, um, became a board observer for Neon, which does serverless Postgres. Um, and then I also invested in a few seed and series A companies that um, are utilizing LLMs, and I'm sure we'll kind of get into those more later. Um, ultimately realized I loved investing, um, and I joined KP as a partner a few months ago to continue partnering with history-making companies. This is super impressive. And, you know, would love to go back, and, and you said you were uh, started at scale, and uh, would love to learn more about your experience at that time, what the company did, what, you know, I, I guess it's doing now and how you, uh, how, how you became part of it. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, ultimately, you know, first met Alex when I was doing competitive math and then really got to know him playing poker. Um, and then a lot of the early scale employees were from that group in college. Um, and I think, I mean, scale originally kind of started out as more of a general purpose uh, API to do things. And one of the things that 
sort of scale felt the pull to do at the time was there were just a ton of self-driving car startups and even larger companies that had such a difficult time of getting training data to train their vehicle's perception model. And so what that means, you know, going a little bit deeper is um, essentially these vehicles need to see the world around them. And the only way that they can do that is by recording data and then having humans or in scales case, humans plus machine learning algorithms come in and like say on this video, this is what a human is like on each frame. And so the car can then learn, like, I've got to avoid that. That is what a human looks like. I've got to avoid it. So this was definitely more on the computer vision side of things um, versus, you know, the LLM tech that we're seeing today is a little bit different, though scale is also providing a lot of training data uh, for that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I must say that in the last 12 months, the frenzy around AI has just been absolutely crazy. And there are way too many companies that have showed up on the radar. I mean, obviously, mostly private companies um, that people may not have even heard about. Now, you may have heard about it because of your investing career, but a lot of us never knew about it. So when when you, you know, how are VCs thinking about AI at this point, given all the publicity, uh, you know, what is the mindset? Well, I think VCs are thinking, you know, way too much about AI these days. <laughs> But obviously, obviously, I'm kidding. Um, but there is a ton of hype. Uh, and it seems like most mainstream VCs are, um, yeah, either investing in it or talking about it or or what have you. Um, but it's definitely not a secret that this could very likely be the most serious platform shift that we've seen since mobile or since the cloud. Um, and honestly, it's been really incredible and encouraging seeing all of the VC activity in the space. So not just you know, strategics and existing funds that are earmarking dollars for, you know, AI investing, but also people like OpenAI starting a fund, new funds offering like GPUs and compute and other like very specific things to to what's going on. Um, it's very clear that everybody's super excited about it and thinking about how they can best position themselves uh, to partner with these sorts of companies. Um, and I mean, in general, like my investing strategy personally is, you know, I want to make sure that I've got my eye on all of the smartest and sort of most capable people in my network. And I literally keep a list of these people and kind of catch up with them every so often. Um, and I kind of keep track just in my head of, well, okay, what types of companies are these people ultimately starting? And, you know, in the years that I've invested, it's been definitely a big mix of crypto, fintech, vertical SaaS, and AI. This year, it's been basically only AI. Um, so basically all of the sort of net new companies of people that I know Almost always, it's going to be a company that's related to AI in some way, shape, or form. So I think that really just kind of speaks to how incredible the, the opportunity is here. You know, you just said something that is, I think, is very, very interesting and, and probably the most profound thing people need to understand is the platform shift. So mm. perhaps, you know, you know, teach us a little bit about when you use that term, how are you thinking about it from a, a uh, total technology point of view, we all understand, or at least most of us understand what's happening in the cloud world, the shifting of that platform. I mean, we all know what mobile did. We all know what internet did. Um, how exactly do you define this platform shift and what do you think it can do? So what's kind of at the very core of a lot of this um, is something called the transformer, which is actually something that was invented rather recently. So it's a particular type of machine learning model um, that we found can be very effective generating and understanding text or you know whether it's human re readable text or code 
or non-human readable text, like understanding a web page is HTML, for instance, or something like that. Um, so transformers were kind of introduced as a concept back in 2017. Um, and basically what's happened over the past few years are companies like OpenAI and other foundation model companies, as well as researchers in general, have made this technology very accessible to people that are building startups. Um, and so basically, there is now very readily available large language models, which are made of you know transformer-based models um, that allow you to essentially understand and generate like text. Um, and so I think the the first example is that a lot of people saw this technology. I had my aha moment back in early 2022 when um, Copilot came out. So this was basically a joint effort between GitHub, OpenAI, and Microsoft. And what Copilot does is it auto-completes code. And so when I first saw this, you know, I thought to myself, oh, it's probably just very basic, you know, probably really obvious code that beginner programmers can use to speed up a little bit. And then very quickly, it became clear that, no, this is actually like an assistant developer, even if you are a very advanced developer, because all of my friends, my smartest like programming friends, they all start just started using it. And, you know, I literally had a quote from one of my friends. He was like, I know it's free right now because this was back in the beta phase, but I would literally pay thousands of dollars a month for this because it is saving me so much time. Um, and so I think, you know, that was when I was like, oh my God, like we've created like at least a, a something that speeds up developers by like, you know, 33% or 50% or something like that. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of people got their sort of exposure to how powerful this was is when uh, chat GBT became really mainstream. So essentially you could ask this interface online, very simple interface, like many, many different types of questions and have it give very convincing, human readable, coherent responses. And of course, it's not always correct. And it's actually really hard or much harder than Google to figure out, like, should I trust this or not? But most of the time, it's pretty, it's pretty right. So a lot of people, you know, either replace their search experiences using this or sort of augmented certain types of tasks, whether it's professional or personal tasks using ChatGPT. Um, and so then, you know, then the next question is, well, okay, where else can we use this technology? And I think it turns out the answer is basically everywhere else. Um, and so we've just seen a huge flurry of startups either on the application side, thinking about how does this technology, you know, replace or augment all of the work that we do today, um, or on the sort of like personal side, like how does this become our friend or our companion or something like that, um, or like enhancing our personal lives in some way. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a super exciting time. I think, you know, the way that we use and interact with software is just going to radically change. It already has. Um, and so I think that's why people are really calling this a platform shift. So you know, if I'm building an application on it, do I not use a lot of the older uh, products that I have and just use, you know, a cloud platform and this, uh, for, you know, this, this base model and and develop it and in that case what are the things that i'm not using and you know they that which are the things i guess that can get disrupted at that point absolutely so there's definitely one route that a lot of startups are taking especially early on which is i'm using all the stuff that i would normally use in my tech stack plus i'm using an api where i basically send a, a prompt or a query and then get back a, a response from one of these large language models um, you know, very commonly people use OpenAI or Anthropic, and there's even now, you know, many other foundation models that, that you can use. However, with this sort of approach, you know, you don't have a lot of control or ownership over the model. 
um, because it's essentially this black box that you're querying and getting a response back. You don't know if it's going to change. Sometimes you can query it the same way and get different responses. So it, you know, it, there's just a lot that's kind of outside of your control. Um, and in many cases, that's fine. Um, but then in some cases, maybe you're wanting to sort of make sure the model performs very, very accurately on a certain type of task, or maybe you're concerned with the security of just using SAS in general, or maybe you're concerned with sort of like the platform, like lock-in. So being locked into like one particular model provider. Um, and in which case, like there've been a lot of infrastructure startups actually that have been started to kind of figure out those concerns, whether it's, you know, like making it such that you can use many of these closed source APIs, or maybe you can use an open source model instead. So this is a typically different company than a foundation model company, but a company who is, you know, really seeing some model that you can then run internally um, versus uh, just interacting with it over API. So there's a few different things that that have happened as, as sort of alternatives to just using the the closed source APIs and um, definitely expect that space to continue to proliferate. Yeah. So, w w so if I wanted to start an AI company today, you know, where um, w w where should I build one or where are most of the companies building their uh, AI, AI uh, model or AI, you know, framework? Absolutely. Um, well, so at a high level, as, as we've kind of been talking about, um, I would say most of the new companies that I see these like today are um, more in the application versus the infrastructure space because building an infra company, well, one, if you're building like a foundation model or an open source model, it's extremely capital intensive um, and talent intensive and very, very hard. And then two, some of the more like, you know, common infrastructure categories have already become quite crowded. So an example that, you know, a lot of people use here is vector databases. Um, and then I guess there's like a third sort of thing with the infrastructure companies. A lot of the foundation model providers are moving up and down the infra stack. So we saw this with OpenAI releasing ChatGPT plugins. So different ways um, that you can integrate other types of services with ChatGPT, um, which some startups were trying to do, but now you can just do it on OpenAI. Um, so in terms of the infra things that I am still seeing, a lot of them are related to compute. So whether or not it's like getting GPU capacity, some examples here are like Lambda Labs and CoreWeave, or sort of better develop, developer experiences for training and inference. Um, so two companies here, Modal Labs and Mosaic ML. And so both of these are basically making it such that if you do use an open source model, you don't have to manage your own infrastructure. Um, you can just use uh, these companies. Uh, and you know this tends to be what people um, who are you know doing open source are really thinking about um, versus the people that I guess using closed source APIs. You don't really need all of this. Um, and there are a lot of cool things that are happening with running large models locally. Um, there's this really cool company called GGML. Um, essentially, it allows you to run large language models locally on your laptop or on edge devices. Um, Meta is actually, or at least at one point, was using GGML to run Llama locally, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then there's this other company called TinyCorp. They're currently making AMD chips easier to work with and more competitive with NVIDIA's for certain types of ML workflows, which I think is really cool. Um, and I guess kind of dreaming the dream here with these sorts of infrastructure companies, ultimately, I think the future that they see and that I see is that you as an individual will be interacting constantly with your own LLMs on your everyday devices. So not, you know, just having to rely on 
like certain touch points uh, inside of certain other software. Um, And then on the application side, seeing a ton of stuff, I think the most obvious thing that we talked about is sort of human-readable text in, human-readable text out. So whether that's in sales and marketing, legal, healthcare, search, chatbots, we already talked through code a little bit. So obviously you have GitHub's Copilot, um, but then you also have a lot of startups that are coming into that space with unique takes. So two examples that I really think are cool companies. One is this company called Codium. Um, they're a free ID autocomplete, so similar to Copilot in that sense. But the difference between Codium and Copilot, um, essentially Codium gives you the ability to self-host the model internally um, and fine-tune it on your own code base. So if you're an enterprise who has really bespoke code bases or who has security concerns around using you know, SaaS, uh, for this particular use case, um, you can use Codium. And then there's another company who's kind of coming out the space from a different angle. It's called Grit, and they automate certain types of tech debt tasks. So if you're trying to, for example, migrate your code base from JavaScript to TypeScript, Grit can do that automatically um, versus, you know, like you spending weeks and weeks um, or procrastinating on it, uh, which is, you know, something that I know is not uncommon with tech debt stuff. Um and then so we've talked through text, code. There's also like the case of sort of not human readable text. So you can use LLMs in the sense that you can input really weird stuff into them and get useful output. So whether that's a web page and sort of automating certain actions on a web page, or whether that's a, like a like a stream of transaction or click data. So there's this really cool startup called Arena AI. And basically what they do is they take user behavior um, and help startups or to help other businesses make um, like business decisions. So whether that's you know like inventory management or dynamic pricing or something like that, they take user input of some form and then use uh, transformer-based models to help you make a decision. Um, and then I guess outside of all of that, obviously there's really cool stuff going on in biotech and drug discovery. Nvidia even has a framework for training and developing large bio like biotech language models um, at large scale to help with um, like disease understanding and finding therapies for patients. Um, And then I guess kind of the last thing that's kind of, if if we're doing a full market map of all the different places startups are going, there's maybe one, you know, other section that's not related to LLMs, but is related to other types of generative models. Um, So different, different type of technology, um, a lot of them are diffusion-based, um, but it's essentially the ability to, for example, generate photos for stock images or ads or social content or generate videos or edit videos. We actually have a really cool portfolio company called Captions that does video editing um, and basically you can either auto-caption it or change the language that somebody's speaking or fix their eye contact or something like that. Um And then separately, I guess kind of the last category is there's also people working on generative audio. So whether that's music or voice or any other type of audio, figuring out a way to to edit that um, or generate it from scratch. Super, super interesting. Let me ask you just quickly on the hardware and the the chip side. You said, you know, there could be areas where I can look at those models on the edge. Now, do I Mm -hmm. need to upgrade my hardware to do that or can it run on the existing hardware? Uh, what's your view on that? It really depends on what type of model you're trying to run and then what type of you know latency okay. cost guarantees you need. 
Um, so there are definitely some cases now when you can where you can run really large language models on your laptop, um, or at least really large language models, um, you know, working with GGML uh, running on your laptop, a specific 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 version of them. Um, and then there's you know some models that you're going to just need way more compute, and so you can maybe either use compute in the cloud or you can buy GPUs or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think one area of research and startups right now is figuring out how do you run better and better models, not upgrading your hardware. Because ultimately, if we want consumers around the world to yeah. be able to be supercharged by LLMs, you're going to need your model or some version of your model to, to run everywhere. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely, that. that's exactly what I was thinking as well. Now, when you look at uh, the hyperscalers, they are obviously buying... NVIDIA chips to run a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, workloads and, and testing environment. But, you know, we also know they are all thinking about building their own chips just because, uh, you know, you don't want to be dependent on one particular one. Is, is, that, is that an area of um, investing that, uh, that you are focused on as well? It's definitely one that I look at. Um, I mean, we haven't, I guess, made any direct investments in the space recently, but you know, something that we're open, we're generalist investors, so we can really get involved with any type of company at any stage. So overall, like, how has your um, investing philosophy changed or the way you allocate capital uh, because of Gen AI? So what's fun, what's what's interesting is that if you look at KP's portfolio, um, you know, we were in kind of the hot, quote unquote, generative AI companies before the whole hype train started, which, which I love. Um, and so, for example, we're in Glean, which does language models for business search. We're in Infinitus, who automates back office calls for healthcare. We're in Synthesia, who does diffusion models for video generation. So there's all these really sort of like hot generative AI companies and spaces. But I mean, we we were in them before, kind of like everybody wised up that this was a, a an interesting category. Um, so in that sense, you know, it hasn't really changed. I would say though that kind of given how broadly applicable the technology is, you know the team is taking AI, you know, startup meetings at a much higher frequency than before. Um, and I mean, I think that, you know, like every week we're having conversations about some, you know, personal productivity company or some company doing like rethinking certain types of business software. So, you know, in, in that sense, we're just having way more conversations about it. Um, and then I guess from like a mechanical standpoint, some of these companies do require a lot more capital earlier on to either train their own models or build out product. Or if it's a hardware company, especially, you, you would need a lot more money early on. So um, just in terms of the round structure, rounds might be bigger and more frequent for these types of companies. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I've always wondered, and I actually brought this question to IBM many years ago when Watson was only available on IBM Cloud. And mm -hmm. I see now, you know, OpenAI is only or is running on Azure right now. Do you think all of these large LLMs need to run on all clouds or are they going to be, you know, partial to one or the other? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, what we've been seeing are lots of partnerships, as you said, between the cloud providers and the foundational model companies. So it's no secret that Microsoft and OpenAI have quite a deep partnership. And then we've also been seeing like, different investments from different cloud providers into different LLM startups and other foundation model companies. Um, so yeah, I think it's a big open question, like how locked in certain models are going to be to certain clouds. Um, so it's something that we'll just have to see how it plays out. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, 
it kind of makes you a little bit more confident that there's going to be at least at least more than one foundation model company because each cloud provider probably wants at least some company or their own internal effort to have a competitive foundation model. No, no, they have to. I mean, that's the whole yeah. point of it. Now, where do you see most of the new AI companies being built? Yeah, so I mean, kind of mapped out the market a little bit earlier um, and definitely, you know, seeing more on the application side of things, whether it's, you know, business software, healthcare, legal, developer tooling, um, or if it, whether it's sort of personal productivity tooling, like assistance of some sort, um, or sort of like on, online companions. Um, I, I'm seeing a ton of companies in sort of all of those spaces. And, you know, the, your current portfolio companies that have been around for a while and they may not be, uh, you know, an AI company or that, do you go out and help them and say, let me go out and, you know, teach you how to do this so that you can, uh, you know, enhance the productivity of a lot of what you're doing? You know, do you work on the, the product side, application side or the R&D side? How involved do you get? So, I mean, we're not just looking to make sort of net new startup investments in AI. We also believe that for many cases, the incumbent, especially if that incumbent is a growth stage startup, like they will win given their distribution and, um, you know, sometimes their, their talent or their capital or something like that, um, that they have as an advantage over a startup. So, yeah, I mean, when we spend time on both. Um, so, for example, you know, we've worked with companies like Coda and Loom and Product Board as they've launched their sort of generative AI offerings or integrations into the products, um, which have all gone super well. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the other hand, we're looking for new startups too. If we do feel like there's a case where, you know, incumbents either can't integrate AI due to like a lack of talent or data, or they'd have to completely rethink their whole product. Or, I mean, in the best case, and this is the case where, you know, I'm most excited to invest in a new startup, um, sometimes there's sort of a classic innovator's dilemma where adding LLMs into a product would cannibalize an existing business. Um, and so I think in, th in that case, you know, like we're very excited to go and, and fund a new startup versus finding an incumbent um, to, to work with. You know, one of the things people don't talk about quite a bit is what kind of companies do get disrupted in this? I mean, where are the ones that are going to suffer most because of it? And would love to get your thoughts on how you have thought about this problem. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think when an incumbent, you know, has a strong tech team, has a willingness to rethink sort of their product workflows, um, and has like the ability to switch their business model if need be, you know, I, then I feel pretty, pretty confident in that incumbent to continue sort of winning the space. Um, but then I think there are just sort of clear areas where LLMs offer just something completely new, whether it's a completely new product experience or completely new like way of charging for something. Um, so, you know, I think different areas, there's sort of different people that are, that are going to, to win. Um, and then in some cases, like, you know, LLM startups are replacing work itself versus like a software incumbent. Um, so it, it really just kind of depends on the vertical. Yeah. You know, one of the things I always think about is, a lot of these models are, I shouldn't say somewhat easy, but they are, it's the, the problem is easier to solve when it is a consumer application, when you have the whole web to scrape data and, uh, you know, you get a result and a clean result very fast. GitHub was a great example that you gave, you know, in our research, we think that product GitHub Copilot will have over a 75% 
you know, attach rate or, you know, we, we think it's going to be one of the most important products Microsoft has launched. But when I look at the enterprise data, which currently all the tech debt you talk about is disaggregated into hundreds, if not, you know, dozens of systems, um, how do I go out and access that data to make some sense out of it? Because unless I get that, how do I know the next you know, client I'm talking to, I have all the right information on that client. Like it's, to me, the enterprise data is is a hiccup. Uh, please tell me what I'm thinking wrong in this particular case or how, how is that problem going to be solved? Got it. So I guess just, just to kind of make sure that I understand. So you're kind of concerned about like how, how do some of these companies use this new technology without just like giving up a lot of private data? Is that kind of what I'm hearing or? So let's say that I am a, I'm a company that's trying to sell something to, you know, somebody out there and I need to, before I need to go, I need to figure out what have we done before with this particular customer. So let's say, but, and all of that, you know, one data is in my CRN system. The other data is in my ERP system. There is some other data that's locked up into some other customer service back office uh, issue. I need to have the. I need to have a single point of view to see that data before I can give you a recommendation what to do, and that's the data bottleneck that I saw. Um, again, with going back to that IBM example, because I looked at Watson very closely several years ago, and I think that was a big problem in the uh, the corporate adoption of some of those AI models. And I'm curious how what these companies are doing to solve that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think a a big piece of a lot of the sort of LLM application enterprise startups is figuring out like, how do I integrate into customers existing systems? Because if they don't do that, then all this important data, like they just can't give an informed recommendation based on history and preferences and things like that. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that that's like one area where a lot of startups are thinking about, you know, how do I really integrate well with lots and lots of different systems and, you know, kind of build out more of a software mode that way. Um, but yeah, it's something it's something very important in terms of sort of product roadmap, especially when you're working with larger customers. You know, in a recent presentation, Salesforce really talked about how their customers are extremely worried that these training models will learn from the data and actually improve on the model itself. So what they're trying to tell them the customers is, you know, this will take the training model. It's going to be only for you. It's going to be in a closed environment. Um, will the actual model improve over time because of that? Because I'm assuming that I have a different model versus, you know, for, for one customer, the other customer. What is the feedback loop then? How, do, how does that work? This This is a really good question and one that, you know, I think a lot of very technical teams are are thinking about. Um, I mean, I think there are ways to, well, one, like if a model is, you know, self-managed by a customer, use like the own, their own um, sort of feedback loop to improve it for like their own use cases. Um, so I think that's, that's relatively straightforward in the sense that I know of companies that are, for example, doing this for code. Um, I think in terms of like, yeah, how do you sort of get the benefits of like, other types of data and workflows that other people are doing with the product. If you are like self-managing a product, um, a bit more challenging. And I think the architecture needs to look pretty different. Um, but I mean, ultimately like, you know, self-managed products do improve, you know, but it's just kind of a different 
different um, frequency than, you know, like if you use the cloud offering, for instance. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we, you know, have, I think people complain about is the incumbent tech giants have too much capital, too much firepower, compute capacity, um, storage, all the, the necessary things needed to win in this particular case. Um, when you, do you talk to them often? And when you talk to them, what do they tell? What you know, how they are approaching this issue? Because um, they don't want to lose their bread and butter to a new startup. Also, so how what is their strategy vis-a-vis uh, you know a new startup but that doesn't have that much capital capacity? Got it. So are we mostly talking about the cloud providers here, yeah. or just any, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the cloud providers all seem to be sort of extremely aware that that this is a huge change and and need to they need to position themselves i mean i think microsoft has definitely or seemingly done the best here in that they've partnered with OpenAI very early on and then separately have already started using a lot of those models and infusing them into all of their microsoft office products and being and have you know basically the service area of microsoft that's been touched by llms and other types of generative models is very high um, i think google you know is also really thinking about this, whether it's making investments in LLM startups or internally, you know, creating more, um, more opportunities for, you know, their, all of their various research teams to work together and to work with application teams um, structurally have definitely heard. Uh, and I think it's been published that, you know, DeepMind and, you know, Google Brain are working closer together and um, sort of leadership of Google is getting more involved. And so it's definitely kind of a seems to be a, a huge priority for them. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we'll continue to see innovations with, with BARD and, and future versions of that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Amazon's maybe been a little bit more quiet um, in terms of what exactly their strategy is. They, they also seem to be making investments. Um, and then, you know, AWS has long had offerings related to machine learning and, you know, will we'll, we'll likely continue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems that they're all hyper aware of what's of what's going on and um yeah i think that they want to either build it themselves or partner with startups when it makes sense so you know when you think of a company and again most of tech spending still resides with older companies you know the legacy companies i you know i probably they're not gonna like the word that i used you know whether it's jp morgan or you know pepsi cola or any of these older companies that control a large portion of the tech budgets do they have to move all of their you know assets to the cloud before they can avail some of these benefits or can they do it in house and you know h- how do you think about uh, that they, they need to evolve uh, to the next generation of you know this platform shift great great question they they don't have to move to the cloud um, or they they seemingly don't um unless they want to kind of like really i you can get a lot of benefits running things internally self-managing things, um, whether it's like using startups where the whole value prop is, you know, you can get a lot of the benefits of this certain type of model, but you can self-manage it. I do also imagine at some point OpenAI and the other foundation model companies will cater towards towards these companies and, and give them more sort of offerings, whether it's open source offerings or um, explicit, you know, self-managed offerings. Um, yeah, I, I like. I definitely imagine that that's going to be something that they do because 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, like what really surprised me to learn the other day was, you know, the majority of GitLab's revenue um, is actually from self-managed code code bases. Um, So there's still a massive market of people that are not, you know, fully on the cloud. Um, And I don't think that these foundation model companies uh, and startups are going to like, you know, not let JP Morgan and others, you know, use... uh, Oh, believe believe me, I you know I work with a lot of software companies where bulk of their revenue is you know driven by some these these companies they 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 dictate bulk of tech budgets out there and uh, you know I recently at the Berkshire annual day they said uh, Geico still has 400 500 systems IT systems so we we have a long way to go before you know you can think about uh, a, a single source of code or single source of truth. Um, you said open source, and that's a has been a very, very important. Uh, I, I guess one of the most important innovation areas uh, in the past 15, 20 years. What are co- people doing when it comes to um, open source and the uh, the foundation LLMs? For sure. Um, I mean, I think open source has really kind of emerged as the alternative to to using closed source APIs. So whether it's you want to self-manage something or you just want to be able to contribute and have a little bit more visibility over what's going on in terms of a model. Um, it's definitely, there's been a ton of activity in open source and in, in all of these areas. Um, so yeah, I mean, it could very well be one or many companies where open source is kind of their, their backbone um, and they emerge as kind of the challenger to the foundation model companies. Um, or the foundation model companies could also like get involved and open source some of their models. Um, we haven't really seen that happen a lot yet, um, but I wouldn't be like shocked if, if it did, just given how much goodwill you get from the research community, how many use cases you unlock with people that can now use these open source models. So it wouldn't surprise me. Um, we are moving also towards the direction of more um, more control over closed source. So, for example, the other day, OpenAI actually announced that they're allowing people to fine-tune GPT 3.5. So, essentially, customize GPT 3.5 for particular use cases. Um, and this is huge because now you can steer GPT 3.5, which costs much less than GPT 4, towards like high accuracy on certain tasks so that you don't have to pay to use GPT-4. You could just use a really fine-tuned, customized GPT-3.5. So that's an example of like, if I, you know, we're going to use an open source model just to customize it, maybe now I would just decide to use a closed source model um, because, you know, it's so easy to do and customize. So, you know, it doesn't really alleviate some of like the security stuff or people that can only self do self-managed, um, but it does help in other cases. Yeah, one of the things, uh, since we are all fi- I mean, over here financial analysts and we are very worried about margins of companies, these things are expensive to run. Like, wh- what does need to happen? What needs to happen for these costs to go down over time? Uh, you know, in your framework. For sure. I mean, a lot of it's um, just research work. Whether it's how do you get a a model with higher accuracy that is smaller, so just like less compute intensive. Um, how do you like take a really large model and figure out different ways to, to, to shrink it? Um, or like, you know, how does compute get cheaper? That's another alternative. Um, so there's just a few different like research directions, whether it's on the, the ML side of things or whether it's on kind of like the hardware or the software infra side of things um, that, that could bring costs down. I mean, and we're already seeing like so much activity 
you know, um, unfortunately I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but stable diffusion, I think the cost of like to, to train something in stable diffusion has gone down or to train your own stable diffusion model has gone down massively. Um, and is now like totally doable for a lot of different startups that are building in the space versus, um, I think for a while we thought that it would be kind of like limited to just a few foundation model companies. So, you know, we're already seeing huge, huge gains, um, in terms of cost efficiency. Got it. You know, one, one big area, and I would say this would be our last area of discussion would be around the regulatory environment. We, we recently did a podcast with Adobe's, uh, uh, and and talked a lot about you know how uh, their users uh, they can choose either to opt in or opt out. Um, almost everybody in the world, including uh, you know OpenAI CEO, has talked about um, putting some you know safeguards around it. I mean, it, you know people. I would say the regulators were behind when it came to the internet. They were really behind when it came to social uh, media companies. But I have a strong feeling then they're, they're not going to be behind when it comes to AI companies. What's what's your take on it, and you know how does how does that impact your investing or just the space in general? It's something that we're definitely watching very closely because it, depending on what the rulings are, it could have huge impacts on the space generally. Um, and I mean, it's as you alluded to, it's it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of gray area when sort of spaces are emerging. And I think in this case, the main questions that companies and investors are trying to answer. are, what data is okay for you to train on? And then, you know, what can you do with various types of model output? Um, and at, as per your point, like there have already been a lot of rulings and activity already. Um, so for example, the other day, you know, you had a U.S. district court judge rule that AI-generated artwork can't be copyrighted. Um, and so, you know, like if it is true that only sort of human artwork images can be copyrighted or videos can be copyrighted. Like what are the implications of that for all of these, um, you know, AI generated images and videos? I think that's a little unclear. Um, and then there are certain areas like music and video and audio where a lot of the training data itself like has restrictions. And so you have to kind of figure out as a startup, how you're going to like get training data, um, without sort of using any data in an improper way. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the largest foundation model companies are either like thinking through or already in hot water over training on certain types of data or outputting data that looks very similar to data that should not be outputted. So, you know, I think we've got a long way to go in terms of figuring out exactly what's okay and what's not. Yeah, no, this, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I learned so much and I'm hoping our listeners uh, will too. Uh, and and I really look forward to having you back uh, next year around the same time to see where this world has evolved over a 12-month period. So, so thank you so much for coming. And uh, we, we had a great time.